to be with you this morning. Hope you all had a great Thanksgiving. Didn't eat too much, but that's what we do on Thanksgiving, right? We eat too much. Um, If you happen to be visiting with us today, uh, we're always grateful to have you, whether you're here online or in person. Thank you so much for coming and spending this time with us. If you're new, uh, my name's Don. I'm one of the pastors on the team here at Grace. And as was mentioned, this is sort of the first Sunday in the Advent season. So this is the beginning of our Advent series, uh, which we've entitled One Story. And really, we're sort of tracing the Christmas story from the beginning of the Bible to the end. And uh, the title for the message today as we kick that series off is The Need for Christmas. And if I were to ask you, where does the Christmas story begin? Well, most people would probably say, oh, in Gospel of Matthew or Luke with the story of Mary and Joseph. But really, the origins of the Christmas story go back much further than Mary and Joseph's time. The Christmas story really has its beginnings in the greatest disaster in human history. Because, you know, sometimes one single wrong choice can have disastrous consequences. History is full of moments where people made really bad choices that led to terrible consequences. I mean, we might think about the people of the city of Troy who, after 10 years of successfully fending off the Greek army who was seeking to capture the city, made the choice to bring that big wooden horse into the city one night in celebration of what they thought was their victory over the Greeks, and you probably know the story if you went to school, Uh, that decision would cause the city that defended itself so valiantly for so many years to fall in a single night. Or we might think about some people like the Donner Party, which was a group of settlers in 1846 who were making their way to Oregon for a new life. And as they were on their way, they made the decision to take a shortcut that was promoted by someone who had never really even been on that route. Uh, And in so doing, they wound up stuck in the mountains in the winter and almost half of them died. And the ones that lived, many of them only survived because they wound up eating the corpses of those who didn't make it. One bad choice can have devastating consequences. But as bad as those decisions were, there's really no comparison between those choices and the disaster we want to consider today. Because this disaster, it didn't just affect a group of people or even an entire city. This moment involved one wrong choice that would cause a disaster so great it would affect the entire universe. And this disaster that has come to be known as the fall is described for us in our text for today in Genesis 3, verses 7 through 24. So as we approach these verses, God has created the perfect world. And the culmination of that perfect world was his creation of 
human beings, man and woman, in the form of Adam and Eve, and he has placed them in the Garden of Eden in this perfect world, and everything is in perfect harmony with each other, God and man, man and woman, man and nature. And they are free to roam about the garden and enjoy all the blessings and benefits of it with one exception. There is one tree in the middle of the garden, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, that God says you are not to eat from that tree. But you know the story. Sometime at some point in the in their being there in the garden, Satan comes on the scene in the guise of a serpent, and in his subtle, crafty way, he begins to undermine what God has told them. He begins to imply that God's really not for you. He's really withholding from you. He's, he doesn't have your best interest at heart because God knows that if you just eat from that tree, that you'll become like him, knowing good and evil. See, he's holding back from you the best that you could be. And we see the result in Genesis 3.6. It says, So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. And the effects of that one choice changed everything. And not just for Adam and Eve, but it would have a devastating effect on you and me and all humanity. And that one choice of disobedience, sin would become a part of this universe. The fall would forever affect all people. And in that moment, Christmas would become the only hope for every human being. And that's really the big idea we want to look at today in this passage, that the hope of Christmas is the only remedy for sin and the fall. The hope of Christmas is the only remedy for sin and the fall. And so this morning, we really want to examine what happened when the fall took place. We want to look at just how bad it is. Because if we really don't understand sin and the fall, we won't really understand or appreciate why we need Christmas so much. And so before we dig into this passage, let's take a moment and pray. Lord, we come to you this morning asking for your grace to meet us in this time we spend together. I pray that you would meet me and fill me with your spirit, Lord, that I might represent you and your truth and your word and, and your heart to your people this morning faithfully and accurately. Lord, let my words be the words you want to speak. And I pray for each of us here that you would grant grace to give us eyes to see and hear and ears to hear. And Lord, you would, you would speak to us in all the things you want to say to our hearts this morning, that we might glorify you and honor the person and work of your Son. So I ask these things, Lord, for the good of your people and for the glory of your name. 
In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Well, let's read through these verses. It's kind of a long passage, but I think it'd be helpful just to kind of go through it to give us an overview of what's going on before we dig into it a little bit. So beginning in Genesis 3, verse 7, after we read that Eve and Adam and Eve had eaten from the tree, it says, Then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked. And they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, Where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. He said, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? The man said, The woman whom you gave me to be with me, she gave me fruit of the tree, and I ate. And then the Lord God said to the woman, What is this that you have done? And the woman said, The serpent deceived me, and I ate. And the Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. And I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. To the woman, he said, I will surely multiply your pain and childbearing. In pain, you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be contrary to your husband, but he shall rule over you. And to Adam, he said, because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you. And you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground. For out of it you were taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. The man called his wife's name Eve because she was the mother of all living. And the Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skin and clothed them. Then the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us in knowing good and evil. Now lest he reach out his hand and take also of the tree of life and eat and live forever. Therefore the Lord God sent him out from the garden of Eden to work the ground from which he was taken. He drove out the man. And at the east of the Garden of Eden, he placed the cherubim and a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. And in this passage, we see three things that were the consequences of Adam and Eve's disastrous choice that day in the garden. Three things that define the fall and its effect on every human being ever born. And the first one we want to look at is that sin and the fall corrupted our nature and alienated us from God. 
See, Adam and Eve's choice to disobey God was a decision to seek life apart from God and his rule. They wanted to be their own authority. They wanted to be like God and know good and evil as he did. But see, man was never designed to handle knowing good and evil like God does. And the choice to try to do so could not have been more destructive. Man would know good and evil, but not in the way he thought. In an instant, Adam went from living in perfect innocence and harmony with God and all that he had made to having his very nature altered and corrupted by evil. In his grasping for life apart from his creator, he became a twisted, distorted caricature of what he was meant to be. And in a horrifying way, Adam became a a misshapen image of what he desired to be in eating from that tree. He would come to know good and evil in a very personal way. He would become like God by becoming, in essence, his own God. You see, the fall was a replacing God on the throne of life and loving and worshiping self instead of God. And we were just never designed to be worshipped in that way. It is a seeking to set our own rules and live for our own glory. It would be kind of like a five-year-old boy who goes into his dad's closet and and takes out his his work suit and his tie and his, his shirt and he dresses himself up in dad's work clothes and stands in front of the mirror thinking that he's going to be the one who's going to go out and fulfill the role and responsibility of his dad. I mean, if it wasn't so serious, it would be laughable. But as a result, man's nature turned inward on itself. It became self-centered and self-focused. You see, the heart of the fall is the change within people from worshiping God to worshiping self. And in that one devastating choice, Adam chose to rebel against God and follow the serpent or Satan. But rather than setting him free as he thought, that one choice to try to be like God enslaved him to another master. And that corruption in his being became who Adam was. And it would be inherited by every human being that would come after him. And we see the effects of this fallenness in Adam's sin immediately. In verse 7, it says, Then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked. And they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. The perfect harmony that existed between everything in God's world is destroyed. Where there was innocence between Adam and Eve before, now there is shame and a need to hide their nakedness. And they are blaming God and one another and refusing to take responsibility for what they have done. We see it in verses 12 and 13. The man said, the woman you gave me to be with me, she gave me the fruit of the tree and I ate. 
And then the Lord God said to the woman, what is this you have done? And the woman said, it was the serpent. He deceived me and I ate. The harmony of the marriage relationship has been defiled and damaged. See it in verse 16. It says, to the woman, he said, I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be contrary to your husband, but he shall rule over you. There will now be manipulation, a desire to control and dominate the other partner that will distort the harmony and beauty of marriage. And the consequences of Adam's rebellion against God will be experienced every day we live. All creation has been put under a curse by God for what Adam did. See it in verses 17 and 18. And to Adam he said, Because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat the plants of the field. The very ground itself will rebel against man and his efforts to work it. Life will now be an ongoing, frustrating experience because of this curse. But perhaps the most devastating effect of the fall is the alienation and the separation from God that it brings. Adam's previous loving relationship with God and the harmony and fellowship they had in the garden has been now replaced by fear and a desire to hide from God's presence. See it in verse 8. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord among the trees of the garden. Intimacy with God has been replaced by guilt and shame. And because of sin and the fall, man is separated from God and no longer allowed in his holy presence In verses 23 and 24, it says, Therefore the Lord God sent him out from the garden to work the ground from which he was taken. He drove out the man. And man's relationship and fellowship with God has been forever broken because of one devastating wrong choice. That's the greatest disaster in human history. So just how bad is this corruption that affects us? Oh, it's bad. It is like a deadly cancer that has spread and affected our entire being. Just a few chapters later in Genesis chapter 6 in verse 5, God gives us his assessment of humanity. And here's what he says. It says, the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. Now, we can't 
brush by the language in that verse too quickly. He says, every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. That sounds pretty all-inclusive, doesn't it? But we would never think of ourselves that way, would we? But the truth is, the corruption caused by the fall affects every part of who we are and what we do. Genesis 6-5 tells us that because of our fallenness, everything we do is sinful in God's sight, in our human condition. Even our best works and deeds are still sinful and unacceptable before God. I mean, that's hard for us to accept as human beings. I mean, don't people do good things? But see, the problem is sin is not just what we do. But sin involves our motives and purposes in what we do as well. And the essence of the fall is the corruption that takes place in our hearts that affects our motives and purposes in all that we do. It's the corruption that makes us self-centered by nature rather than God-centered. And the sinful choices we make in our thoughts and words and deeds, they're just the evidence of that reality. And that self-centeredness taints and defiles everything we do, even our best attempts and works and deeds. See, sin is not just breaking the rules. It's far deeper than that. The Apostle Paul tells us in Ephesians 2-3 as he describes as speaking to believers about their formal life and their natural condition. He says, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind. There's the self-centeredness. And he says, and we're by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. See what Paul says? It's our very nature that something's wrong with, something's wrong at the core of who we are that is worthy of God's judgment and wrath. Our fallenness has so corrupted our very nature that we never do anything for motives and purposes that can truly please God. Everything we do is tainted and distorted by sin and our fallenness, and it cannot be pleasing or acceptable to him. And that's why Paul in Romans 3, 10 and 12 gives us his assessment, or this is really God's assessment of humanity. He says, as it is written, none is righteous, no, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. A few chapters later in Romans 8, verse 8, he would say it this way, those who are in the flesh, which is our natural human fallenness, cannot please God. Now, This doesn't mean that we're as evil as we could be. 
Doesn't mean people don't do things that would be good from a human perspective. In other words, people help out in times of disaster, people feed the hungry, people do all kinds of things that appear to be good from a human perspective, but it does mean that our fallenness has so corrupted us at our very core that we are incapable of pleasing God in our fallen human condition. That even the best things we do are stained and defiled by that corruption. Let me maybe illustrate it this way for you. Let's say that I really wanted to do something really good and nice for you. And so it's your birthday, and I, and I want to make you a, a special batch of cookies. And I want to make these cookies using my favorite recipe and all the good things that go into them. And so I make my cookies and I I bring them to you and I say, hey, I just wanted to bless you with these cookies. You know, I I spent a lot of time and effort pouring into just doing this for you. And they've got all my, you know, the ingredients for my special recipe. It's cinnamon, sugar, and all those kinds of things. And just a little tiny bit of dog poop. Would you find those cookies acceptable? Would you take them and eat them? Probably not, right? But why? I mean, my intent was good. I wanted to bless you. I wanted to please you. But there was something that defiled those cookies that made them unacceptable. And that's how the corruption of our nature has affected everything we do because of the fall. We are unable to please or be acceptable to God in any way. We're locked out of a relationship and fellowship with him. And the sad thing is there is nothing we can do to change that situation in and of ourselves. But that's not all that sin and the fall have done to us. The second thing we see in this passage is that sin and the fall brought death. Look at verse 19. He says, By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground, for out of it you were taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. The consequence of Adam and Eve's choice to disobey God is death. And God told them that's exactly what would happen if they disobeyed and ate from that tree. In Genesis 2.17, he tells Adam this. He says, But of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat of it you shall surely die. You see, God is the source of all life. Life can only come from him. Life is a divine gift, but there in the garden, it is tied to the requirement of perfect obedience to God. And in the garden, Adam's choice to disobey God resulted in his forfeiting his divinely given right to have true life. See, death is it's not a ceasing to exist. Death is better defined as the absence of what is truly life. 
Death is an inability to experience and know life as it was meant to be. And in Adam's sin, death has both instantaneous effects and progressive ones. Adam and every human being that would be born after him died spiritually that very day. The moment Adam and Eve ate that fruit and disobeyed God and the corruption of that one choice affected their lives. They died spiritually and they would pass on that state of spiritual death in their nature to every fallen human being that would come after them. God told them that would happen if we look back at Genesis 2.17 again where he said, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat of it you shall surely die. That day, death began in that moment for Adam and every one of us. I mean, if you think about it, this is, this is really the ultimate zombie apocalypse. I mean, you know, the, if you're familiar with the zombie apocalypse theme that's so popular in movies and TV shows like The Walking Dead and things like that, the way the story goes is it's usually some new virus that comes along and spreads throughout the population and it not only kills everybody, but it has the effect of those who are dead kind of coming back to some distorted form and some misshapen form of living where they can move around and walk and do things. But it is really not life. And the way the story goes is usually it's some small group of survivors that aren't affected by it and they're, you know, the the plot usually involves them trying to navigate through this world where almost everybody's now part of the walking dead. There's only one difference between those stories and the story of the fall, and that is in the zombie apocalypse of the fall, there are no survivors. Everybody is the walking dead. And the reality of death would continue to work itself out until it would claim Adam's physical body as well. As we look at the next couple of chapters of Genesis unfold and we see how sin results in the murder that Cain, of Cain to Abel and, uh, and then Genesis chapter 5 is really the, the history of all the generations between Adam and the time of Noah. And it's not the most exciting chapter to read in the Bible, but there is one reason why it's there. There's one phrase, one refrain that is repeated in every individual that is named in that chapter. And he died. And he died. And he died. See, death now rules our human existence. Death is the consequence of sin and the fall. It is now the end of every human being. Romans 5.12, Paul says it this way. He says, therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin, 
And so death spread to all men because all sinned. So in our fallenness and separation from God, who is the source of all true life, we are literally born into a state of death. And as soon as we're born, physical death is working itself out in our lives. I mean, it's only God's kindness and mercy that it isn't fully instantaneous the moment we're born. But we taste it in the pain and suffering we experience, in the realities of sickness and disease. And we experience the reality of death working itself out in our lives day by day. I mean, it's as if we are born into a funeral procession on the day we're born. And that procession is just slowly making its way to our grave. But this is not the way human life was meant to be. Death is an intruder. It's an enemy that holds us captive. But in our sin and fallenness, death rules over this world and our lives. And we have lost the genuine life that is only found in God and in relationship with him. And we are helpless. And we cannot escape the power and curse of death. We are in a very real way the walking dead. But there's one more thing that the fall has done that we see in this passage. And that's the third thing we want to look at. Sin and the fall brought the certainty of eternal judgment. Let's look at verses 23 and 24 again. It says, Therefore the Lord God sent him out from the Garden of Eden to work the ground from which he was taken. He drove out the man, and at the east of the Garden of Eden he placed the cherubim and a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. So here we see Adam and Eve driven out from the garden and from dwelling in God's presence. And to be expelled from God's presence is to be consigned to an existence of living death. Because only in God's presence can one ever have true life that is eternal. And so sin results in the loss of eternal life. And death is an exile from God's presence that never ends. But sin in the fall not only results in the loss of eternal life, but God in his holiness must judge and punish all sin. And the fall also inevitably leads to divine judgment and punishment. In verse 24, it says that God places cherubim at the entrance of the garden to guard the way into his presence where life is found with a flaming sword. Now, cherubim were a particular kind of angel, and it seems that their role among the angels was the unique role of guarding the access to the presence of God and attending his presence. And so there are cherubim now placed at the, at the entrance to the garden with a flaming sword. And almost always in scripture, when you see this idea of a flaming sword, it's a picture of God's judgment and justice. 
And so what's being communicated here is that now to enter into God's presence, man must now pass through God's holy judgment. I think we see this same reality in the temple, in the tabernacle, in the Old Testament. If you're familiar with kind of the way the temple worked or the tabernacle, in the very heart of the temple was the most holy place, the holy of holies, where the presence of God dwelt. And the Ark of the Covenant was there. And on top of the Ark of the Covenant were two cherubim. So cherubim are still guarding the access to the presence of God. And then in the wall of the temple leading into the holy place were these massive pictures of cherubim guarding the way into the holy of holies. And no human being could come into the presence of God in the temple without passing through God's holy judgment. And if you tried to do that as a sinful fallen human being, you were killed instantly. And the only way that the Israelites could even draw near to God's presence was there had to be a sacrifice, a death had to occur, the judgment of God had to be poured out on something in place of that person to enable them to draw near. But even then, they couldn't freely come into the presence of God. No animal sacrifice was sufficient to open the way into the access to God and to deal with God's holy judgment that would fall on anyone who tried to enter God's presence. You know, if you live then, an awareness of God's holiness and justice would have been very at the forefront of your awareness as an Israelite. Because you couldn't think about what it meant to come into the temple without an awareness of just how awesome God's holiness and justice was. But I feel like, to be honest, in our day, we, we've lost some of that reality. The, the, the culture that we live in really wants to put God's holiness and justice kind of under a pillow somewhere. We just want to think about God as being the God of love. You know, he just loves everybody. He's just accepting. He just, you know, just wants to be good and gracious to all people. And God is infinite love. But he is also infinitely holy and righteous and just, and we can't lose the proper balance between those two, or we wind up misrepresenting him and who he is. Because God will one day judge all sin in his infinite and perfect holiness. No evil will escape his righteous judgment. And every human being will give an account for our every wrong thought, word, and deed that we have done. The writer in Hebrews says it in Hebrews 9.27. He says, Just as it is appointed for man to die once, and after that comes judgment. You see, we will all enter into God's presence at some future point through the flaming sword of his holy judgment. And God's holy judgment will result in his eternal punishment and wrath upon all sin. And because of the fall and how it affects every human being,
There is not one of us who would escape the consequence of eternal punishment and wrath for our sins. So this is the plight of every human being because of sin and the fall. Sin and the fall corrupted our nature and alienated us from God. Sin and the fall brought death. And sin and the fall brought the certainty of eternal judgment that will one day come. So maybe at this point you're thinking, what is up with this guy? You know, doesn't he know it's the Christmas season? I mean, what's up with all this sin and death and judgment stuff? I mean, why in the world are you telling us this in the midst of this holiday season when everyone's caught up in the warm, good feelings of Christmas? Well, it's really not to discourage you or ruin your holiday. And it's not to make you feel guilty or condemned. But maybe here's why. You know, this Christmas, some of you guys uh, may go into a jewelry store to buy jewelry for your wife or somebody. And maybe you want to go in and you want to buy a pair of diamond earrings. And when you walk into that jewelry store and you ask the clerk there to show you some diamond earrings, this is often what you see, if you could bring that slide. That's what you see often, right? Because diamonds are often displayed against a black velvet background, right? Why? Because it's against the blackness of that background that the glory, the luster, the beauty of those diamonds shine forth. And the true hope of Christmas is best seen against the black backdrop of sin and the fall. It's there we see most clearly why we need Christmas so much. Because even there in the midst of the darkness and blackness of the fall in Genesis 3, God's mercy and grace begin to shine forth. Because God has a plan to deal with sin and the fall, and that plan is Christmas. And here in Genesis 3, we begin to see the very first glimmer of Christmas. We see it in verse 15 where God says, I will put enmity, as he speaks to the serpent, he says, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. And in this verse, we have the glimmer of the promise that one day God will make a way to deal with the effects of sin in the fall. One day, one will come who will also be born of a woman, who will stand against the work of Satan and his rule over this world, and he will crush his head. He will defeat the power of Satan and sin and death. There will be one who will come, who will be a second Adam, if you will, who will come into this world born as a human being, and this is none other than the person of Jesus Christ, as God will send his own son this time to accomplish his purpose. And Jesus will come into this world, and where the first Adam failed and disobeyed 
Jesus will obey perfectly every moment of his life, and he will earn in his perfect obedience the right to come into the presence of God and purchase the right of eternal life for himself. But he will go further than that. He he didn't just come to make a way to create a new humanity. He came to rescue people like us who are caught in the inheritance we get from Adam. And so he goes and gives himself to die on a cross to take our death upon himself. He's forsaken by God in spiritual death on that cross so that we don't have to be. He takes the physical death that we deserve in our place. And he bears the flaming sword of God's justice on our behalf so that those of us who will turn from living for ourselves in our own self-centered way and turn to God and put our hope and trust in him and what Jesus did, put our hope and trust in God's Christmas plan, that we can be rescued from the inheritance we have in Adam. And we can be transferred, the Bible says, out of that kingdom into the kingdom of his son. We can be joined with Jesus where we share in everything that Jesus accomplished on our behalf becomes ours. That's the glory of Christmas. That's what Christmas is all about. And if you happen to be here or listening and you've never seen your need for a Savior, for Jesus to be a Savior for you to rescue you, oh, God's still inviting you to come and be part of his people that he is rescuing through the person and work of Jesus. So God's plan to deal with sin and the fall is Christmas. If I could have the band worship team come and join me. So Christmas is God's plan to rescue us from the consequences of sin in the fall. And that plan begins to unfold in the pages of Scripture shortly after this account of the fall. You see, Satan's plan to carry all humanity with him to the destruction of of eternal judgment in hell, it will not ultimately succeed. In 1 John 3.8, it says, the reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. Christmas is God's plan to make a way that those who are spiritually dead in their sins can be restored to life, true life, once again. 1 Corinthians 15, 21 says, For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. And Christmas is God's plan to rescue us from the certainty of eternal judgment and eternal death for our sins, to make a way for us to live righteously before him in his holy presence forever. Paul says it in Romans 5, 17 through 19. He says, For if, because of one man's trespass, Adam, death reigned through that one man, much more 
will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. Therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. For as by the one man's disobedience the many were made sinners, so by the one man's obedience the many will be made righteous. You see, that's the hope of Christmas. The hope of Christmas is the only remedy for sin and the fall. And Christmas is God's divine rescue plan to save us from the greatest disaster in human history, to rescue us from our captivity to sin and death, to free us from the fallenness that has corrupted our very nature, to save us from God's eternal judgment for our sins, to purchase for us again the restoration of the relationship with God that was lost that fateful day in the garden and to enable us to live in the good of the love and acceptance of God for all eternity, and to enable us to turn from our self-centered way of living and turn back to living our lives in a way that would seek to please and honor God as we were created to do. See, Christmas is not just a warm, fuzzy time of year. It's the answer to the greatest disaster in history that affects every one of us. And if you don't believe that disaster is real, just look at the brokenness of the world around us. Just listen to the news. Christmas is our hope and confidence that God has acted to overturn the effects of sin and the fall through sending Jesus Christ as a Savior for us. And he has made a way for us to be reconciled to him, for those of us who are the unfaithful to come to him, to be adopted into his eternal family, to be forever secure in his grace and love, despite the reality of our fallenness and sin. You see, the victory over sin and death, it has been decisively won for us by Jesus, even though it is in some ways still in the process of unfolding in all of its fullness in this broken world. But that's why we need Christmas. That's why the hope of Christmas is the only remedy for sin in the fall. And for those of us who have put our faith and hope and trust in this Savior. I mean, this should bring us much peace and joy as we celebrate the birth of Jesus Christ in this Christmas season. So let's close today by standing and singing that song we sang at the beginning and just proclaiming the greatness of what God has done for those of us who are in such need.